0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear part of a story by V.S. Naipaul, Jack's Garden, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 1986.
1: If I say it was winter when I arrived at that house in the river valley, it is because I remember the mist, the four days of rain and mist, that hid my surroundings from me and answered my anxiety at the time—anxiety about my work and this move to a new place.
0: The story was chosen by Karlovy Knausgard, the author of the six-volume autobiographical novel *My Struggle*, which was published in Norway from 2009 to 2011. Excerpts from books two, three, four, and five of *My Struggle* have appeared in the magazine or on New Yorker.com. Hi, Karlovy. Hi. So. What you've chosen to read today is the beginning of Jack's Garden by V.S. Naipaul, which was published in the magazine in 1986 and then became, in a slightly different form, the beginning of his novel, The Enigma of Arrival. Yeah. When did you first read it?
1: I read it um, early 90s. I was very young, in my early 20s, -hmm. and I was working night shifts, and I started to read that book, The Enigma of Arrival, and it made such an impression on me. And it was so boring, but it, because it is, because there really is nothing there. But it, you know, it's been on my mind ever since. And I didn't really understand why the fascination, why it was so fascinating for me. But I reread it now, and I have done *In Between* too. So this is kind of one of my favorite books. i and I, you know, I don't really know why, but there is something in that voice, and it's something in that situation that kind of is. Yeah, there's a strong pull in it for me.
0: The arrival in the book is partly Naipaul's arrival from Trinidad to England, but also his arrival in what you'll read in this uh, very small village or, or part of the countryside near Salisbury yeah. in England. And that's really all—almost all—that happens in the book. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, but it's <laughs> yeah. a
1: very subtle book. Yeah. If you read it, you know you should read slowly and and mm-hmm. and. And there is a lot of things going on there, really, really a lot of things. But it is almost like a a program for a novel and it is about, you know, it's about so many things. Uh, but it, first of all, this first part is about seeing, you know, seeing the world
2: mm-hmm.
1: and see it how it really is. And that's what's going on in this first part, you know. That's mm-hmm. why it's this, his own description of landscapes and his walks and he has this um, conception of the place he's come to and... and but what he sees is, uh, is not conferring that. It's, he says something different, and, and those two visions are what this book is about, what you know about the world and what you actually see in, mm-hmm. in the world.
0: When you first read it, were you reading it in English or in Norwegian? In Norwegian. In yeah, Norwegian. Yeah.
1: And that's uh, so different because his language is so beautifully in English. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an amazing piece of writing, <laughs> I think, in English. And you can't, you know, take care yeah. of that in a yeah. translation.
0: But even in translation, it, that came through to you. Something came through to yes, you. Yes, yes, it did. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk uh, more after the story. And now here is Carlo Nausgaard reading from Jack's Garden by V.S. Naipaul.
1: Jack's Garden For the first four days, it rained. I could hardly see where I was. Then it stopped raining, and beyond the lawn and old buildings in front of my cottage... I saw fields with strip trees on the boundaries of each field, and far away, depending on the light, glints of a little river, glints that sometimes appeared, oddly, to be above the level of the land. The river was called the Avon, not the one connected with Shakespeare. Later, when the land had more meaning, when it had absorbed more of my life than a tropical street in Trinidad where I grew up, I was able to think of the flat, wet fields with the ditches as water meadows or wet meadows and the low, smooth hills in the background beyond the river as downs. But just then, after the rain, all that I saw, though I had been living in England for twenty years, was flat fields and a narrow river. It was winter. This idea of winter and snow had always excited me, but in England the world had lost some of its romance for me, because the winter I found in England had seldom been as extreme as I had imagined there would be when I was far away on my tropical island. I had experienced severe weather in other places, but in England this kind of weather hardly seemed to come. In England, I wore the same kind of clothes all through the year, seldom wore a poliver, hardly needed an overcoat. And though I knew that summers were sunny and in winter the trees went bare and brush-like, as in the watercolors of Roland Hilder, the year, so far as vegetation and even temperature went, was a blur to me. It was hard for me to distinguish one section or season from another. I didn't associate flowers or the foliage of trees with any particular month. And yet I liked to look. I noticed everything and could be moved by the beauty of trees and flowers on early sunny mornings and late light evenings. Winter was to me a time mainly of short days and of electric lights everywhere at working hours also a time when snow was a possibility. If I say it was winter when I arrived at that house in the river valley, it is because I remember the mist, the four days of rain and mist that hid my surroundings from me and answered my anxiety at the time, anxiety about my work and this move to a new place. It was winter too because I was worried about the cost of heating. In the cottage there was only electricity, more expensive than gas or oil, and the cottage was hard to heat. It was long and narrow, it was not far from the water meadows and the river, and the concrete floor was just a foot or so above the ground. And then, one afternoon, it began to snow. Snow dusted the lawn in front of my cottage, dusted the bare branches of the trees, outlined disregarded things, Outlined the empty, owl-looking buildings around the lawn, which I hadn't yet paid attention to or fully taken in, so that, piece by piece, while I considered the falling snow, a rough picture of my setting built up around me. Rabbits came out to play on the snow, or to feed. A mother rabbit hunched with three or four of her young. They were a different, dirty color on the snow, and this picture of the rabbits, or more particularly their new color, calls up or creates the other details of the winter's day. Late afternoon snowlight, strange empty buildings around the lawn, becoming white and distinct and more important. It also calls up the memory of the forest I thought I saw behind the whitening hedge against which the rabbits fed. White lawn. The empty buildings around it, the hedge to one side of the lawn, a gap in the hedge, a path, the forest beyond. I saw a forest, but it wasn't a forest really, it was only the old orchard at the back of the big house in whose grounds my cottage was. What I saw, I saw very clearly, but I didn't know what I was looking at, I had nothing to fit it into. I was still in a kind of limbo. There were certain things I knew, though. I knew the name of the town I had come to by train. It was Salisbury. And Salisbury was almost the first English town I had got to know. The first I had been given some idea of. From a reproduction of the constable painting of Salisbury Cathedral in my third standard reader. Far away on my tropical island, before I was ten, A four-color reproduction that I had thought the most beautiful picture I had ever seen. I knew that the house I had come to was in one of the river valleys near Salisbury. Except for the romance of the constable reproduction, the knowledge I brought to my setting was linguistic. I knew that Avon originally meant only river, just as hound originally just meant a dog, any kind of dog. And of Walden Shaw, the name of the village and of the manor in whose grounds I was, I knew that both its elements, Walden and Shaw, meant wood. One further reason, apart from the fairy tale feel of the snow and the rabbits, that I thought I saw a forest. I also knew that the house was near Stonehenge. I knew there was a walk that took one near the stone circle. I knew that somewhere high up on this walk there was a viewing point. And when the rain stopped and the mist lifted, after those first four days, I went out one afternoon looking for the walk and the view. There was no village to speak of. I was glad of that. I would have been nervous to meet people. After all my time in England, I still had that nervousness about being in a new place, the rawness of response. Still felt myself to be in the other man's country. Felt my strangeness, my solitude. On every excursion into a new part of the country, what for others might have been an adventure, was for me like a tearing at an old scab. A narrow public road ran beside the dark, yew-screened grounds of the manor. Just beyond the road, with its wire fence and roadside scrub, the down sloped sharply upward. Stonehenge and a walk lay in that direction. There would be a lane or path leading off the public road. To find that lane or path, was I to turn left or right? There was no problem really. You came to a lane if you turned left. You came to another lane if you turned right. Those two lanes met at Jack's cottage, or the old farmyard where Jack's cottage was in the valley over the hill. Two ways to the cottage, different ways. One was very old and one was new. The old way was longer, flatter, it followed an old, wide, winding riverbed. It would have been used by carts in the old days. The new way, meant for machines, was steeper, up the hill and then directly down again. You came to the old way if you turned left on the public road. This stretch of road was overhung by beeches. It ran on a ledge in the down just above the river, and then it dropped almost to the level of the river. A little settlement there, just a few houses, I noticed a small old house of brick and flint, with a fine portico, and on the river bank, very close to the water, a low, white-walled, thatched cottage that was being done up. Here, in this settlement, we turned off onto the old way to Jack's cottage. A narrow asphalt lane led past half a dozen ordinary little houses, two or three of which carried, their only fanciful touch, the elaborate monogram of the owner or builder or designer, with the date, which was, surprisingly, a date from the war, 1944. The asphalt gave out, the narrow lane became rocky, and then, entering a valley, became wide, with many flinty wheeled ruts separated by uneven strips of coarse, tufted grass. This valley felt old. To the left, a steep slope shut out a further view. This slope was bare, without trees or scrub. Below its smooth, thin covering of grass could be seen lines and stripes, like wheels, suggesting many consecutive years of tilling a long time ago, suggesting also fortifications. The wide way twisted, the wide valley, the ancient river course, that the way occupied then runs straight and far, bounded in a distance by the beginning of a lowdown. Jack's cottage and the farmyard were at the end of that straight stretch where the way turned. The other way to the cottage, the shorter, steeper, newer way up from the main road and then down to the farmyard was a rocky, uneven lane lined on the north side with a windbreak, young beech trees protected by taller pines. At the top of the slope It was a modern, metal-walled barn. Just a little way down on the other side, there was a gap in the windbreak. This was the viewing point for Stonehenge, far away, small, not easy to see. Not as easy as the luminous red or orange targets of army firing ranges on Salisbury Plain. And at the bottom of the slope, down the lane beside the windbreak, were the derelict farm buildings and a row of still occupied agricultural cottages, one of which Jack lived in? The first afternoon, when I reached the farm buildings, walking down the steep way beside the windbreak, I had to ask the way to Stonehenge. From the viewing point at the top, the way had seemed clear, but from that point, down had risen against down. Slope against slope, dips and paths had been hidden, and at the bottom, where mud and long puddles made walking difficult and made the spaces seem bigger, and where there appeared to be many paths, some leading off the wide valley way, I was confused. such a simple inquiry though, and in the emptiness, and I have never forgotten that on the first day I asked someone the way was it Jack? I didn't take the person in, I was more concerned with the strangeness of the walk, my own strangeness, and the absurdity of my inquiry. I was told to go round the farm buildings, to turn to the right, to stick to the wide main way, and to ignore all the tempting dry paths that led off the main way to the woods lying on the other side. Young woods that falsely suggested deep country, the beginning of forest. So... Past the mud, around the cottages and the farmyard, past the messes of old timbers and tangled old barbed wire and apparently abandoned pieces of farm machinery, I turned right. The muddy, wide main way became grassy, long wet grass. And soon, when I had left the farm buildings behind and felt myself walking in a wide, empty old riverbed, the sense of space was overwhelming. The grassy way, the old riverbed, sloped up so that the eye was led to the middle sky. And on either side were the slopes of the downs, widening out and up against the sky. On one side there were cattle, on the other side, beyond a pasture, a wide, empty area, there were young pines, a little forest. The setting felt ancient. Impression was of space, unoccupied land, the beginning of things. There were no houses to be seen, only the wide grassy way, the sky above it, and the wide slopes on either side. It was possible on this stretch of the walk to hold on to the idea of emptiness, but when I got up to the top of the grassy way and was on a level with the barrows and tumuli that dotted the high downs all around, and looked down at Stonehenge. I saw also the firing ranges of Salisbury Plain, the many little neat houses of West Amersbury. The emptiness, the spaciousness, through which I had felt myself walking, was as much an illusion as the idea of forest behind the young pines. All around, and not far away, were roads and highways, with bright-colored trucks and cars like toys old and the new, and from a midway time or a different one, the farmyard with Jack's cottage at the bottom of the valley. Many of the farm buildings were no longer used. The barns and pens, red brick walls, roofs of slate or of clay tiles around the muddy yard were in decay, and only occasionally in the pens were their cattle. Sick cattle, enfeebled calves isolated from the herd, fallen tiles, hold roofs, rusted corrugated iron, bent metal, a pervading damp, the colours rust and brown and black, with a glittering or dead green moss on the trampled, dung, softened mud of the penyard. The isolation of the animals in that setting themselves like things about to be discarded, was terrible. Once there were cattle there that had suffered from some malformation. The breeding of this cattle had become so mechanical that the malformation appeared mechanical too. The mistakes of an industrial process. Curious additional lumps of flesh had grown at various places on the animals as though these animals had been cast in a mould divided into two sections, and as though, at the joining of the moulds, the cattle material, the mixture out of which the cattle were being cast, had leaked and had hardened, matured into flesh, and then developed hair with the black and white Frisian pattern of the rest of the cattle. There, in the ruined, abandoned, mossy farmyard, fresh snow only with their own dung, they had stood, burdened in this puzzling way, with this extra cattle material hanging down their middles like a bull's dewlaps, like heavy curtains, and waiting to be taken off to the slaughterhouse in the town. Away from the old farm buildings, and down the wide, flat way that I thought of as the old road to the farm and Jack's cottage there were other remnants and ruins, relics of other efforts or lives. At the end of the wide way, to one side of it, in tall grass, were flat, shallow boxes, painted grey, set down in two rows. I was told later that there were or had been beehives. I was never told who had kept the bees. Abandoned now, unexplained, the grey boxes, which it was worth no one's while to take away, were a little mysterious in the unfenced openness. On the other side of the wide droveway, its great curve round the farm buildings just beginning here, in the shelter of young trees and scrub, there was an old green and yellow and red caravan in good condition, a brightly painted gypsy caravan of the old days as I thought, looking as if its horses had been unhitched not long before. Another mystery, another carefully made thing abandoned, another piece of the past that no longer had a use, but had not been thrown away, like the antiquated, cumbersome pieces of farm machinery scattered and rusting about the farm buildings. Midway down the straight, wide way, Far beyond the beehives and the caravan was an old hayrick with bales of hay stacked into a cottage-shaped structure and covered with black plastic sheeting. The hay had grown old. Out of its blackness there were green sprouts. The hay that had been carefully cut one summer and baled and stored was decaying, turning to compost. The hay of the farm was now stored in a modern open shed, a prefabricated structure that carried the printed name of the maker just below the apex of the roof. The shed had been erected just beyond the mess of the old farmyard, as though space would always be available, and nothing old need ever to be built over. The hay in this shed was new, with a sweet, warm smell and some of the bales were unstacked into golden, clean, warm-smelling steps, which made me think of the story about spinning straw into gold, and of references in books with European settings to men sleeping on straw in barns. That had never been comprehensible to me in Trinidad, where grass was always freshly cut for cattle, always green, and never brown into hay. Now, in winter, at the bottom of this damp valley, high-stacked golden hay bales, warm golden steps next to rutted black mud. Not far from the decaying rick were the remains of a true house, a house with walls that might have been of flint and concrete. A simple house, its walls seemingly without foundations, it was now quite exposed. Ruined walls, roofless, around bare earth. No sign of a stone or concrete floor. How damp it felt. All around the plot, the boundary trees, sycamore or beech or oak, had grown tall, dwarfing the house. Once they would have been barely noticeable. The trees that, living on while the house had ceased to be, now kept the ground chill and mossy and black and in perpetual shadow. Perhaps the house had been no more than a shepherd's shelter, but that was only a guess. Shepherd's huts would have been smaller, and the trees around the plot didn't speak of a shepherd's hut, didn't speak of a man lodging there for only a few nights at a time. Sheep was no longer the main animals of the plain. I saw a sheep shearing only once. It was done by a big man, an Australian I was told, and was done in one of the old buildings at the side of the cottage row in which Jack lived. I saw the shearing by accident. I had heard nothing about it, it just happened to be going on at the time on my afternoon walk. But the shearing had clearly been news for some. The farm people and people from elsewhere as well as gathered to watch a display of strength and speed, the fleecy animal lifted and shorn, and sometimes cut, at the same time, and then sent off, oddly naked. The ceremony was like something out of an old novel, perhaps by Hardy, or out of a Victorian country diary. And it was as though, then, the firing ranges of Salisbury Plain and the vapor trails of military aircraft in the sky and the army houses. And the roaring highways didn't lie around us, as though in that little spot around the farm buildings and Jack's cottage time had stood still, and for a little while things were as they had been. But the sheep-shearing was from the past, like the old farm buildings, like the caravan that wasn't going to move again, like the barn where grain was no longer stored. Before just as the modern prefabricated shed has replaced the old rotting hayrick. So, but far away, not a simple addition to the old farm buildings. The true barn was now at the top of the hill, beside the windbreak. It had galvanized tin walls. It would have been rat-proof. There machinery cost everything to go, and powerful trucks, Not nowadays the wagons that might have used the flat draw way to the old barn at the bottom of the valley climbed up the rocky lane from the public road and pulled into the concrete yard of the barn, and a metal spout from the barn poured the dusty grain into the deep trace of the trucks. The straw was golden, warm, the grain was golden, but the dust that fell all around on the concrete yard the rocky lane, the pines and young beaches of the windbreak, the dust that fell after the grain had poured into the trace of the trucks was gray. At the side of the metal-walled barn, and below the metal spot, there was a conical mound of dust that had been winnowed by some mechanical means from the bigger conical mounds of grain in the barn. This dust. The mound firm at the base, wonderfully soft at the top, was very fine and grey, without a speck of gold. New this barn, with all its mechanical contrivances, but just next to it, across an unpaved muddy lane, was another ruin, a wartime bunker, a mound planted over with sycamores for concealment, with a metal ventilator sticking out, oddly now amongst the trunks of the ground trees. The sycamores must have been planted at least twenty-five years before, but they had been planted close together, and they still looked young. Jack lived among ruins, among superseded things, but that way of looking came to me later and has come to me with greater force now as I write this. It wasn't the idea that came to me when I first went out walking. That idea of ruin and dereliction, of out-of-placeness, was something I attached to myself, a man from another hemisphere, another background, coming to rest in middle life in a cottage of a half-neglected estate. An estate full of reminders of its Edwardian past, with few connections with the present. An oddity among the estates and big houses of the valley, and I a further oddity in its grounds. I felt unanchored and strange. Everything I saw in those early days, as I took my surroundings in, everything I saw on my daily walk, beside the windbreak or along the wide grassy way, made the feeling more acute. I felt that my presence in that old valley was part of something like an upheaval, change in the course of the history of the country. Jack himself, however, I considered to be part of the view. I saw his life as genuine, rooted, fitting, man-fitting the landscape, I saw him as a remnant of the past, the undoing of which my own presence pretended. When I first went walking and saw only the view, it did not occur to me that Jack was living in the middle of junk among the ruins of an earlier century, that the past around his cottage might not have been his past, that he might at some stage have been a newcomer to the valley, that his style of life might have been a matter of choice. A conscious act, that out of the little piece of earth that had come to him with his farm workers' cottage, the end of a row of three, he had created a special land for himself, a garden where, though surrounded by ruins, reminders of vanished lives, he was more than content to live out his life, and where, as in a version of a book of hours, he celebrated the seasons. I saw him as a remnant, not far away, among the ancient barrows and tumuli were the firing ranges and army training grounds of Salisbury Plain. There was a story that because of the absence of people in those military areas, because of the purely military uses to which the land had been put for so long, and contrary to what one might expect after the explosions and mock warfare, There survived on the plain some kinds of butterfly that had vanished from our populated parts. And I thought that in some such fashion, in the wide drawway at the bottom of the valley, accidentally preserved from people, traffic, and the military, Jack too had survived. I saw things slowly. They emerged slowly. It was not Jack whom I first noticed on my walk. It was Jack's father-in-law, and it was the father-in-law, rather than Jack, who seemed a figure of literature in that ancient landscape. He seemed a Woodsworthian figure, bent, exaggeratedly bent, going gravely about his peasant's tasks, as if in an immense lake-district solitude. He walked very slowly, the bent old man, he did everything very deliberately. He had worked out his own paths across the downs, and he stuck to them. You could follow these paths, even across barbed wire fences, by the blue plastic sacks, originally containing fertiliser, that the old man had rolled around the barbed wire and then tied very tight with red nylon strings, working with a thoroughness that matched his pace and deliberateness to create these safe, padded places where he could cross below the barbed wire or climb over it. The old man first, then, and after him, the garden. The garden in the midst of superseded things. It was Jack's garden that made me notice Jack. The people in the other cottages I never got to know, couldn't recognize, and I never knew when they moved in or moved out. But it took me some time to see the garden, so many weeks, so many walks between the whitish chalk and flint hills up to the level of the barrows to look down at Stonehenge, so many walks just looking for hairs. It took some time before, with the beginning of a new awareness of the seasons, I noticed the garden. Until then, it had simply been there, something on the walk, a marker, not to be specially noticed. And yet I loved landscape, trees, flowers, clouds, and was responsive to changes of light and temperature. I noticed his hedge, first of all. It was well-clipped and tight in the middle, but ragged in places at ground level. I felt from the clipping that the gardener would have liked that hedge to be tight all over, to be complete, like a wall of brick or timber or some kind of man-fashioned material. The hedge marked the boundary between Jack's fruit and flower garden and the droveway, which was very wide here. Bare ground around the cottages and the farm buildings are nearly always soft or muddy. In winter, the long puddles reflected the sky between stretches of black tractor-marked mud. For a few days in summer, That black mud dried out, turned hard and white and dusty. So for a few days in the summer the hedge that ran the length of Jack's garden was white, with chalk dust for a foot or so above the ground. In winter it was spattered with mud, drying out white or gray. The hedge hid nothing. As you came down the hill with the windbreak, you could see it all. The old rust and black farm buildings in the background, the grey plastered cottages in front of them, the grounds or gardens in front of the cottages, the emptiness or no-man's land in front of the cottage ground or gardens. And besides Jack's garden, Jack's hedge, a little wall of mud spattered green, abrupt in the openness of the doorway, like a vestige a memory of another kind of house and garden and street, a token of something complete, something ideal. Technically, the gardens were at the front of the cottages. In fact, by long use, the back of the cottages had become the front, and the front gardens had really become back gardens. But Jack, with the same instinct that made him grow and carefully clip, and so abruptly end, That hedge beside the droveway treated his garden like a front garden, a paved path with a border of some sort ran from his front door all the way down the middle of his garden. This should have led to a gate, a pavement, a street. There was a gate, but this gate, set in a wide-meshed wire-netting fence, led only to a wire-fenced patch of earth that was forked over every year. It was here that Jack planted out his annuals. In front of this was the empty area, the no-man's land, between the droveway and the beginning of the cultivated down. Jack's ducks and geese had their sheds in that area, which was messy with dung and feathers. Though they were not penned in, the ducks and geese never strayed far. They just walked back and forth across the drawway. Hedge, garden, planting bed for annuals, a plot for ducks and geese, and beyond that, and stretching along in front of the ground reserved for the two other cottages, just where the land began to slope up to the farm's machine-cultivated fields, was the area where Jack grew his vegetables. Every piece of ground was separate. Jack didn't see his setting as a whole. But he saw its component parts very clearly, and everything he tended answered the special idea he had of that thing. The hedge was regularly clipped, the garden was beautiful and clean and full of changing color, and the goose plot was dirty, with roughly built sheds and enamel basins and bowls and discarded earthenware sinks, like a medieval village in miniature all the various pieces of the garden Jack had established around the old farm buildings. This was Jack's style, and it was this that suggested to me, falsely as I got to know soon enough, the remnant of an old peasantry surviving here like the butterflies among the explosion of Salisbury Plain. So much of this I saw with the literary eye, or with the aid of literature, I heard on the radio one morning that in the days of the Roman Empire, geese could be walked to market all the way from the province of Gaul to Rome. After this, the high-headed, dung-dropping geese that strutted across the muddy, rutted way at the bottom of the valley and could be quite aggressive at times, Jack's geese developed a kind of historical life for me, something that went beyond the ideas of medieval peasantry old English country ways, and the drawings of geese in children's books. And when, one year, longing for Shakespeare, longing to be put in touch with the early language, I returned to King Lear for the first time in more than twenty years and read, in Kent's railing speech, Goose, if I had you upon serum plain, I'd drive ye cackling home to Camelot. The words were quite clear to me. Serum plain, Salisbury Plain, Camelot, Winchester, just twenty miles away. And I felt that, with the help of Jack's geese, creatures with perhaps an antiquity in the drawaway lands, which Jack would not have guessed, I had arrived at an understanding of something in King Lear that, according to the editor of the text I read, commentators had found obscure. The solitude of the walk. The emptiness of that stretch of the downs enabled me to surrender to my way of looking, to indulge my linguistic or historical fantasies, and enabled me, at the same time, to shed the nerves of being a stranger in England. Daily I walked in the wide, grassy way that led to Stonehenge, perhaps, in the old days, a processional way, Daily I climbed up from the bottom of the valley to the crest of the way and the view, the stone circles directly ahead, down below, but still far away, gray against green, and sometimes lit up by the sun. Going up the grassy way, and though willing to admit that the true processional path might have been elsewhere, I never ceased to imagine myself a man of those bygone times, climbing up, to have this confirmation that all was well with the world. On the hill with ancient barrows, larks spread, and behaved like the larks of poetry. And drowned in yonder living blue, the lark becomes a sightless song. It was true. The birds rose and rose in almost vertical flight. I suppose I had heard larks before, but these were the first larks I noticed, the first I watched and listened to. They were another lucky find of my solitude, another unexpected gift. And that became my mood. When I grew to see the wild roses and hawthorn on my walk, I didn't see the windbreak they grew beside as a sign of the big landowners who had left their mark on the solitude, had preserved it, i planted the woods in certain places, I didn't think of the landowners. My mood was purer, I thought of these single-petalled roses and sweet-smelling blossoms at the side of the road as wild and natural growths. One autumn day, the days shortening, filling me with thoughts of winter pleasures, fires and evening lights and books. I felt something like a craving to read of winter in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a poem I had read more than twenty years before, at Oxford, as part of the Middle English course. The hips and a horse beside a windbreak, the red berries of this dead but warm time of year, made me want to read again about the winter journey in that old poem. And I read the poem on the bus back from Salisbury where I had gone to buy it. So in tune with the landscape had I become, in that solitude, for the first time in England. Of literature and antiquity and the landscape, Jack and his garden and his geese and his cottage and his father-in-law seemed emanations. It was his father-in-law I noticed first, and it was his father-in-law I met first, I met him quite early on, while I was still exploring, and before I had settled on a regular daily road. He was fantastically, absurdly bent, as though his back had been created for the carrying of loads. A strange croaking came out of him when he spoke to me. It was amazing that, speaking like that, he should attempt speech with a stranger, but more amazing were his eyes, the eyes of this bent man. They were bright and alive and mischievous. In his cadaverous face of a curious gray color, a swarthiness that made me think of gypsy origins, with a bristle almost a dome of white on cheek and chin, these eyes were a wonder and a reassurance that in spite of the accident that had permanently damaged his spine, the personality of the man remained sound. He croaked. Dogs? Dogs? That was what the croaking sounded like. He stopped, raised his head like a turtle. He croaked, he raised a finger of authority. He seemed to say, dogs? Dogs? and it needed only an echoing word from me. Dogs, for him to subside, be again a bent old man, minding his own business. His eyes dimmed, his head sank down. Dogs, he muttered, the word choking in his throat. Worry, pheasants. Beside the lane, and in the shelter of trees, were hedge-high cages with pheasants. It was new to me to see that these apparently wild creatures were in fact reared, a little like backyard chickens. He subsided, the brightness in his eyes went out, and I never heard him speak again. Our paths never really crossed. I saw him occasionally in the distance. Once I saw him actually with a load of wood on his bent back. Wordsworthian the subject of a poem Wordsworth might have called the fuel-gatherer. He walked very slowly, yet in that slowness, that deliberation, there was conviction. He had set himself a task he certainly intended to finish. There was something animal-like about his routine. Like a rat, he seemed to have a run, though it wasn't clear to me what apart from looking after the pheasants he did on the land. The droveway, the way at the foot of the ancient river valley, was very wide. When I first went walking, it was unfenced. In my first year, or the second, the wide way was narrowed. Barbed wire fence was put up. It ran down the middle of the way, but the way was long and straight and the sturdy green fence posts, the thicker ones stoutly buttressed, and the taut lines of barbed wire made me feel that although the life of the valley was just beginning for me, I was also at the end of the thing I had come upon. How sad it was to lose that sense of width and space. It cost me pain. But already I had grown to live with the idea that things changed. Already I lived with the idea of decay. I had always lived with this idea. It was like my curse. The idea, which I had had even as a child in Trinidad, that I had come into the world past its peak. Already I lived with the idea of death. The idea, impossible for a young person to possess, to hold in his heart, that once time on earth, One's life was a short thing. These ideas of a world in decay, a world subject to constant change, and of the shortness of human life, made many things bearable. I saw the farm manager making his rounds in a Land Rover. I saw the modern grain barn at the top of the hill. I saw the wind break up and down that hill and saw that it had been recently planted with the pines growing faster than the beaches they were intended to protect, and already creating something like a strip of woodland, with a true woodland litter of fallen branches and dead wood. I saw the hand of man, but didn't sufficiently take it in, preferring to see what I wanted to see, the great geography of the plain here, with the downs and the old river valley, Far from the course of the present smaller river, I saw the antiquity, I saw the debris of the old farmyard. In this way of seeing at that time what I wanted to see, I was a little like Jack's father in law, who ignored the new fence that cut at many places into segments of his run across the droveway. He ignored the new gates, they were few, stuck to his run creating styles and steps and paddled passing places over and through the barbed wire. The odd zigzag of the old man's run was now revealed, as were its widest limits, from the pheasant cages on the muddy, shaded lane on the far side of the hill with a new barn, down the lane, across the droveway, and all the way up a scrub-bordered field to the old wood on the northern slope. A whole life, a whole enduring personality, was expressed in that run. And so strong were the reminders of the old man's presence. So much of his spirit appeared to hover over his run, over his styles and steps in those oddly placed rolled up plastic sacks. Even those he had rolled up and tied long ago and which were shredding now, plastic without its shine, blue turning to white that it was some time before it occurred to me that I had not seen him for a while. And then I understood that what I had been seeing for many weeks past, many months past, was his relics. He had died. There had been no one to record the fact publicly, to pass the news on. And long afterward, on the fences growing older themselves, those plastic wraps or pads continued to bleach and shred away. Still with us, like debris at the bottom of the valley, the roofless walls of the ruined house, the antiquated farm machinery below young silver birches, the other machinery and discarded timber and metal below the beech trees at the back of the old farm buildings. And it was a good while later that I got to know that the old man had lived and died in Jack's house and that he was Jack's father-in-law.
0: That was Carl ove reading from Jack's Garden by V.S. Naipaul. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 1986 and became the first chapter of Naipaul's novel, The Enigma of Arrival, in 1987. So, Carl I was reading um, Frank Kermode's original review in the New York Times of the Enigma of Arrival, in which he talks about the intensity of detail Naipaul uses for subjects that are maybe not very interesting in themselves. And he writes, the opening section is particularly hard to read, and you could be forgiven for regretting the loss of those easier pleasures offered by Mr. Naipaul's early fiction. Why do you think he's wrong? or is it particularly hard to read this opening
1: It is but it's meant to be because it's it's um it's reflecting you know how it is to come to a place where you don't understand what's going on you see no connections you see it visually you know and that's what this book is about and the thing is that he's only describing what he sees you don't know nothing about him the the person who sees you know nothing about his state of mind But you could guess there is a certain depression or something pressing him down. Um, But you don't know. So that's a mystery. Who is talking here, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's a mystery what he can see. And all these things are evolving very, very slowly from this. You know, I can't see anything. It's just raining. And then I see a little bit and a little bit. And it kind of goes deeper and deeper into the act of seeing and brilliantly turns it around so then you can start the book again because it ends with the motivation for writing it. And then you know all about him and you know all about the reasons for him writing this and you know all about what it is about. I mean, it is boring, but you have to earn, you know, your right to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to read it and to, mm-hmm. to penetrate into, into that book.
0: It's a difficulty that's rewarding. That rewards yeah, you. Yeah, and end. and,
1: you, and you, you, why should we be entertained? I mean, it's a depressing <laughs> man moving into a depressing countryside in England. It's yeah. not an entertaining thing. Yeah, it's a <laughs> deeply existential thing in a very original way. Very, yeah. very original.
0: Well, you talk about him seeing in those first four days where he can't see anything, and then slowly he makes things out. I find this idea that he can't see anything until it snows sort of fascinating yeah. because yeah. everything's buried in whiteness and suddenly he can see it that's a
1: wonderful <laughs> <thing>.
0: <laughs> what do you make of that it's so it's so odd you would think this would be the moment where he can't see anything because it's all under snow
1: no but i think if you you know it's a snowy landscape it, it, it is it is like that it has another depth to it and the and no angles, and so it, it's different but there are two arrivals in this book, mm-hmm. and the first is this one, and then in the next chapter, he goes back to the first arrival to England, where he comes from Trinidad. 20 years earlier. Yes, yeah. and he wants to be a writer. It's very interesting, because then he, um, he tells us about what he sees, and he's looking for material, you know, for his writing, and he's very young, and... and and he's in this fantastic surroundings. I mean, there is, a, there is a place where people from all over the world, in 1950, are gathered in, in London, mm-hmm. you know, just after the war. And he's not interested in them. And he doesn't see them. And he doesn't see what he has. And, who, and he doesn't see himself. And he kind of denies everything and pick out things he has seen in other writings, you know. And then there's kind of a perfect match to this opening because this is really trying to see what this is. What is this around me, you know? What is it?
0: At the same time, he has these assumptions that turn out to be wrong. He he thinks there's a forest and there's no forest, yeah, you know? He exactly. thinks he thinks Jack is a, a peasant who's been there for, yeah. you know, hundreds of years. In yeah. fact, he's not. He's sort of passing through in a way.
1: This is kind of struggling with the exact same thing, but he's yeah. wanting to, to go deeper and deeper into it or to see more and more. And in the end of the book, you, you see it more like it <laughs> mm-hmm. really is, you know, mm-hmm. through this... Extremely slow and elaborate prose about insignificant things, and it's also, you know, he's from Trinidad, and this is this is the empire he's he's in, and it's in decay, you know. But you, that's not what he really is writing about. But it still is there, you know. What he what he it, in, in the part
0: that you read is is very much about the decay. I mean, the the number of crumbling buildings, these unused beehives, the caravan that's been abandoned, yeah. everything has been yeah. left behind and is falling apart, yeah. do you think those are just the things that he's seeing at that point or do you think there is really this sense that this whole landscape has been left behind somehow?
1: I think it's a way of him to describe those kind of greater cultural movements without talking about them but just describing what this is.
0: What do you think is the value, for him as a writer or for us as readers, of this level of detail? Do you think we need to know that there's one path over here and there's one path over there, and that you you might see this from this angle or that from that angle? What's the use of it?
1: There was a review of this book by Salman Rushdie. Hmm. I think it was in the Guardian when the book came out, and he he was saying he was kind of hypnotized by it but he found it um, too bleak and too loveless. And he said there is one story in her because Napoleon is having an idea for a novel which is The Enigma of Arrival, which is set in some antique Roman you know, society and it's very fantastic and sounds like a great novel, you know. And Rushdie suggests to Napoleon that's what the novel you should write, you know, <laughs> because that's the, that's novel and that's yeah. that's the art of the novel. That's mm-hmm. fiction, you know. Mm-hmm. But this book is about the opposite of fiction, you know. This mm-hmm. is, And that's why he's writing about all his roads and why he's so detailed, because he has orientated himself and his novel into the real world around him, you know. He wants us to see the real world. And the thesis he starts with in this book is that we don't see it. Mm-hmm. And when you come to some place, you don't understand what's going on. You see it, but you don't understand it. And that's kind of a rootlessness that, that you have and that he had when he came the first time and so on and so on. And just by staying and looking, he mm-hmm. kind of it opens mm-hmm. up and everything becomes meaningful in the end. I'm not used to think of the use of things in <laughs> novels. <laughs> I, I think it's 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 some of the writers I like the most can very often be boring, you know. <laughs> like something in there reminds me of, you know, like Peter Hanke, some of his mm-hmm. writing and, and it's kind of the same... Um, that he insists on a detail, and he insists of something. Yeah. You know, Hanke wrote this uh, amazing book about the, the outskirts of Paris, where, where there is, he's interested in the things in between, you know, the, the suburban uh, landscape, the sprawl, the things that uh, no one thinks is it's relevant, and his own novels is taking place there. And it's a little bit the same by this book. I think it's, that's where we live our lives.
0: In that Rushdie review, he talked about the, the sense of a writer who feels obliged to bring his new world into being by an act of pure will, the sense that if the world is not described into existence in the most minute detail, then it won't be there. The immigrant must invent the earth beneath his feet. Do you get the sense that perhaps Naipaul is sort of writing himself into possession of this place, sort of if he knows every detail about it, then he's at home there or he owns it in some way?
1: Yeah, and what he discovers is that the connections he has been thinking of, that's just a fantasy. I mean, nobody of these peoples are really connected, you know, and that's, that's also something this book is about. And you're saying, you know, we could say it is boring, and but it is actually a murder in the book, and there is a suicide in the book, and it's all these dramatic events, but it's kind of completely unsensational described. hmm like just something you hear about. You meet those people, they're, and then they're off
0: stage. These events.
1: Somehow they are. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, when Jack, whom we eventually meet, is just suddenly dead. Yeah. You don't see it or experience it.
1: And you don't have any relationship to these people either when you read, because that's not what this book is about. But it still is feeling in the end like you've read a very rich book.
0: Now, in this, in Jack's Garden, you know from the title, and you know quite early on. We're going to hear about Jack's garden, and we're going to meet Jack, and then you go for pages and pages and pages and pages, and you don't get to Jack, and you barely even get to his father-in-law. It feels willful, you know. Maybe a way of generating suspense, or sort of dangling this thing in front of us, so we'll keep going because, well, we haven't got to Jack's garden yet.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but of course, you are waiting for something to happen. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you think Naipaul is thinking about the reader, or caring about the reader's experience? Or no. No.
1: No. I can't think he
0: hmm We have this landscape that's, that's sort of ruined and falling apart that he describes. And then at the center of it, at the center of sort of this focus the narrator is developing, is Jack's garden, which is a place that's alive and sort of orderly and, and well laid out. How much of this landscape, how much of this description is meant to feel real and how much is meant to feel symbolic of something?
1: When I read it, I felt like you know there's no symbolic intention in it, but it's a consequence of doing what it does. It's kind of symbolic. There is an element to it all of the time. There is connection between Trinidad and England, you know, immigrants. So there is an element of it, of course, but it keeps it out of. And that's almost the point of it. It keeps it out of the writing, because all of those that way of thinking is the things that obscure what we see, you know, because we think this means this and this means that and so on. And I think he wants to get that away from the text somehow.
0: It's interesting that, you know, he has this level of detail that's extremely visual, you know, it's just even down to these little green shoots coming out of the black hay and so yeah. on, that you feel you can see it. And yet part of the point of this... Piece is that he can't see or he's not seeing or that he's seeing the wrong thing or things turn, yeah. out he thinks he sees turn out to be wrong. Yeah. And that sits sort of uneasily next to these very specific descriptions that are almost like photographs.
1: Yeah. That's the enigma, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. He sees it. And that's the, what was said that in the beginning of I see everything clearly, but I don't know what it means, you know.
0: There's one line in the, the part that you read where he says, these, these ideas of a world in decay, a world subject to constant change and of the shortness of human life made many things bearable. What do you think he means by that? What would knowing that human life is short make bearable?
1: I found that perfectly logical when I read mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of death in the book and it is a lot of decay in the book. And I think the book is a way of dealing with it, and it almost turns it into something not ugly, not bad, but kind of a part of what it is to be human, almost. And there is had this idea of something grand, that is, you know, the empire, which is doesn't exist in this book. It's Everything is falling apart, and this book also is about death, very much so. So it's kind of almost seen through... Person who is, I think, filled of sorrow, and it in the end of the book you can see that more clearly. But it is like it's, it's almost like a hopeless man, and he's coming to this place. He doesn't know anyone, and he, he 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 starts to write this book and what he sees. And there is really nothing. We don't know that. There's nothing. It doesn't go inwards, it only goes outwards and, and describe what this is. But you could feel it, you know. So it is a way of comfort in this. And the notion of that you are part of this is a good notion, you know. It's a part of this landscape, you're part of this change, you're part of...
0: You're part of continuity.
1: Yes, and and people die. And you will die. But it's so good to be here because, you know, the snow is falling and
0: There'll still be new sh- new shoots coming out of the, <laughs> the blackened hay. Yeah. There's also um, he invests this landscape with literary continuity. Yeah. You know, where he has to go and and find uh, Gawain and read this you know very old poem again. Yeah. And think about it relative to what he's actually seeing out of out of the bus window, or and there's maybe a comfort in that.
1: Yeah, and I feel very. Know, connected to that, I know that feeling very well. I'm not sure if the same feeling, but that feeling—that's also something I'm looking for in literature. You know, and and to give uh, not only your life but your landscape a kind of a depth and a continuity and and um, meaning. I think.
0: Now, this was published as a novel. We're we're talking as though this narrator is is Naipaul. and I I was looking at his Paris Review interview where he. <laughs> He said something interesting. He said, whenever I've had to write fiction, I've always had to invent a character who roughly has my background. I thought for many years how to deal with this problem. The answer was to face it boldly, not to create a bogus character, but to create, as it were, stages in one's evolution. So I assume that's what he did What he did here. This yeah. is a stage in his evolution. It's interesting to me that that he felt that the idea of creating a character who was not himself would be bogus that he has to, every time he has to write fiction, he has to invent a character who resembles him. What, hmm. what do you think that that sense of obligation is, you as someone who has written at great length about a character who, who greatly resembles you?
1: Yeah. I think if the project is to describe the place where you are and, and what you see, who you are is a very important part of, of that you know, vision, and I feel there's a certain feeling of liberation in this book just because of it is, is obviously so close to, to the writer who wrote it.
0: Thinking back to the last time we spoke and we talked about the idea of the novel, that the term novel for you doesn't uh, imply fiction. No. It it implies something else and perhaps what, what's happening here.
1: Yeah, I think this is a, almost a, a very good example of this is a novel, this isn't a memoir, I mean...
0: What is it that defines a novel for you if it's not fiction?
1: That that's hard. I mean, for me, a novel can be you know, almost everything that's the thing with a novel, that the form is so elastic and open, and you nobody know, has to be a search for something. I mean, a search for something else than, you know, telling stories from my life or whatever.
0: And the search here is for a home, for for an idea, for... A sense of place or belonging.
1: Yes, but also for for meaning, you know.
0: Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. V.S. Naipaul was born in Trinidad in 1932. He's published more than 30 books of fiction and non-fiction, including A House for Mr. Biswas, A Bend in the River, and A Way in the World. He received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2001. Carlovic Nasgard is the author of the novels Out of the World, A Time for Everything, and My Struggle, the first five volumes of which have been published in the U.S. by Archipelago Press. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. If you enjoy the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, you may also enjoy our new podcast, The Author's Voice, New Fiction from the New Yorker. On The Author's Voice, you'll hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Author's Voice on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction on newyorker.com and on The New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.